0: How many of you enjoyed our uh, Sunday school study on heaven? I mean, has that been a blessing to you? I certainly have learned a lot, and I went to Bible college and studied some of that stuff, and I'm still learning. And uh, one thing we talked about in my class this morning, we opened up with this question, is what have you seen change about our country and our earth in your lifetime? And now, I teach a Sunday school class with 20 and 30-year-olds. And uh, we had a lot to say about how much stuff has changed, and we've only been on this earth for just two, three decades, and uh, we talked about how uh, smartphones have been born and just how much that has changed our society. I mean, my oldest brother graduated high school, and the smartphone really hadn't come out yet, and uh, just how much life has changed in the last 10 years or so uh, since that technology came out. We talked about a Shopping online. I mean you can buy almost anything on Amazon. I bought my couch on Amazon. I bought all sorts of stuff online Uh, Retail has changed so much and then I I thought about this. I don't think this came up in our class, but communication really has changed Um, It used to be not not that long ago one of our primary ways of communicating was um, calling others or even a written letter and how many of you know seeing a letter is about as rare as seeing a dinosaur in 2019? It's pretty rare, and it, but it's still special, isn't it? If someone takes time to write a letter to you. Um, of course, many of you know our youth pastor, uh, Brother Paul. He and his family moved back to Indiana and are uh, settling into a new stage of life there. And I remember um, you wouldn't expect Brother Paul to be a letter-writing kind of guy, uh, but I think the day before he left town, I remember walking up to my office and seeing that there was a card on my door. And uh, Brother Paul had handwritten me a card and just expressed appreciation for our time together and uh, shared some really crazy memories we had together, uh, mostly centered around videos. And then I brought this tonight. My, my wife, on occasion, handwrites me notes. That's where you can, like, say, Oh, you know. She still loves me. And uh, I remember I, I finally got on my, my bike the last week, because the weather's been so nice, and I saw that she had, um, this was from last cycling season, but I still had it in there. She put a note in there uh, to tell me, have a great ride, and, and she loves me, and was looking forward to me being back home. And uh, there's something special, isn't there, when someone takes time to write you. On occasion, someone is, some uh, missionaries or guest speakers we've had in our church have written letters to our church, right? Sometimes we Uh, Put them in our bulletin if a guest speaker came and he wrote a letter to our church. Sometimes we'll print those in the bulletin. A lot of our missionaries will write letters to our church informing us how God has been working in, in their mission field. And what our mission's dollars are going to. But I want you to think about this tonight. Imagine if Jesus himself wrote a letter to our church. Now we have a busy spring going on. We had spring revival. We have... Easter Sunday coming up, and we have missions conference. But I would just imagine if Jesus himself wrote a letter to our church, it wouldn't matter what service we had. It wouldn't matter what program we had. We'd probably scratch all that and spend some time reading a letter that Jesus cared enough to write to our church. Are you with me? Uh, I mean, a letter from Jesus himself is something that deserves some weight and deserves some recognition. Yet that's exactly what we find and Revelation 2 and 3. In fact, uh, we didn't talk about this a lot in our study on the book of Revelation as we talk about heaven in our Sunday school classes, our fellowship Bible classes, but really the book of Revelation was written to seven seven unique and individual churches. Uh, If you read Revelation 2 and 3, that's actually how the book of Revelation starts off. It addresses things which were happening presently in John's day, in these seven individual churches spread throughout an area of the world called Asia Minor. And yet, Jesus is writing these letters not like maybe a letter I got from Brother Paul or a, a, a note that my wife has written me. Uh, he writes these letters to these churches as an authority figure writing to his church, right? Because the church is subject to Jesus Christ. I mean, We're led by a pastor, but all of us here are aware that ultimately our authority is God, is Jesus Christ. He deserves the preeminence. And so Jesus writes to these churches, and I want you to look in Revelation chapter number 1. I want you to see how John describes the relationship between Jesus and his churches. He uses some kind of metaphorical language here. Look at verse number 13. He sees this vision. And uh, I actually look at verse 12, and he says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, that would be a term for Jesus, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Now look at verse number 20. What did he see? He sees the mystery of the seven stars. This is Jesus addressing John, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. Now here's what it, this is metaphorical language, but the thing about Revelation is it usually tells us what these metaphors mean. Look at verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Now look at verse number one of chapter two. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, right, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So here's what John is describing. He's describing Jesus almost the, the way I imagine is like a drill sergeant. You know, they line up. And they present themselves before the drill sergeant. I'm not a military guy, so I may have this slightly wrong. But he walks among his churches, those seven golden candlesticks. It's a metaphor. And he's inspecting his churches. And in his right hand, which symbolizes his authority, he has in his right hand what the author says are the angels of the seven churches. Now, some people say these are literal angels. Some people say maybe these are the pastors. The word angel means messenger. But the idea there is the same, is that Jesus Christ inspects his churches, his churches are accountable to him, and he holds authority over his church. Are you following me? That Jesus is writing these letters to these seven churches as a figure of authority, and he's looking into the life of these seven churches, and he's going to point out some things that are right, and he's going to point out some things that aren't right. And tonight we're going to look at just one letter Jesus wrote, And he wrote it to what I would call the drifting church at Ephesus. And I think if we pay attention tonight, there are some lessons that the Church of Fellowship, Fellowship Baptist Church, there's some things we can learn by what Jesus wrote to the drifting church in Ephesus. I want you to look at verses 2 and 3 with me tonight. Like most of the letters, Jesus starts with praising what's good. Look at verse number two. He says to the church at Ephesus, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. So Jesus is saying to this church, he says, you're doing a lot of good work. You're doing a lot of labor. There were a lot of good things the church was doing. And one of those things was that they were faithfully rejecting the ungodly culture of their day. Look at verse 2. He says, Thou canst not bear them which are evil. Now, this doesn't mean this church was stuck up. You know, our pastor talked about holiness this morning. This doesn't mean they looked down their nose at people who were evil. But the idea there is that this church refused to tolerate evil. It refused to tolerate sin in its midst. And and how many of you agree tonight that there's a lot of teaching in the New Testament that if there's something our church should be serious about, it's that the people who make up our church should live holy lives unto the Lord. We ought to look different than people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Our lives ought to be distinctly holy. And that's the idea here. This church, man, they, they did not tolerate evil they would not allow the evil of their day to permeate their church. They took a stand against ungodliness, even in which the culture they lived in popularized stuff like that. They lived in Ephesus. And just to give you an idea, the city of Ephesus was a city that was dominated by idol worship. Literally, up on the hill, just like you would go to like Washington, D.C., and there would be these monuments that you can see for miles around, in any direction in the city of Ephesus you could look and on this hill was this gigantic temple to the goddess Diana and I'm not I'm not lying I'm serious about this part of the idol worship was people would engage in prostitution And so this church, even though the city of Ephesus, prostitution was just totally cool and and, and, and marital faithfulness was not something people really cared about, the church here at Ephesus would not tolerate this type of lifestyle and they would not put their stamp of approval on something that the culture said was okay. But then I want you to see what else Jesus says in verse number two. He says, and thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. Now look at verse number 6. He says, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So here's what he's saying about this church. is not only were they morally right, not only were they committed to holiness, but this was a doctrinally strong church. They knew what the Bible said. And so when these people who are called the Nicolaitans came in and said, hey, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's okay if you worship idols on the side. After all, we have the grace of Jesus and it washes away all of our sin, so it doesn't really matter. But when these people came in, the church at Ephesus said, no, we're not going to stand for that. We're not going to tolerate somebody who's going to say it's okay to worship idols. We know what the Bible says. And here's what's impressive is is. Uh, these seven letters that Jesus wrote, two of the churches that he wrote to weren't smart enough or didn't know their Bible enough to know that the Nicolaitans were teaching something false. And so this church at Ephesus, they were doctrinally strong. They were morally committed to truth, and they they stood for holiness. And then look at verse number three. Not only did they have these, these strengths to their church, but it Verse 3 communicates the idea that they did all this even in the face of persecution. Look at verse 3. And he says, thou hast borne and hast patience. That word patience means endurance. And for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. So again, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying they've rejected ungodliness. They've rejected false doctrine. They faithfully served Jesus even when the culture of their day would oppose them and persecute them for it. And there were people literally in this church who probably lost their job because they were a follower of Jesus. There were people in this church that were ostracized from their society and from their community just because they identified with the Messiah. How many of you agree this was a good church? Church. This is a strong church. There were some really good qualities to this church, and I believe with all my heart, if Jesus Christ were to write a letter to FBC, he would commend our church for some of the very same things. I believe this, if Jesus were to to write a letter to our church, he would commend our church for our strong stand on doctrine. Man, our church has been in existence for, I believe over 50 years, I think getting close to 60 in a couple years, Our church has been around for a long time and if there's anything that characterizes our church is we do not move with the theological trends of the day is that our church has always stood on what the Bible has said. There's no disagreement in this church about, well, was Jesus the Messiah or was he not? We're not having those conversations. There's no disagreement in this church about whether or not the Bible is the word of God. Our church is very firm on that. There's no disagreement in our church about whether or not baptism is part of salvation. No, salvation's by grace alone. There's no works we can do to earn the favor of Jesus Christ. We understand what the Bible says. This is a doctrinally strong church. And I think a lot of that the credit of that goes to some pastors that our church has had for, I think, between Brother Landis and Pastor Prater for, I think, 40 years of pastoral ministry, we've had some men who stood behind the pulpit and made a priority out of Bible preaching. But not only that, we have some people in our church who don't just listen to the preaching and take everything at their word. They study the Bible for themselves. And so I have no doubt in my mind that if someone were to come into our church and try and spread some false doctrine that clearly contradicts the word of God, that that wouldn't have any place at Fellowship Baptist Church. You know what, church? Church? Sometimes maybe it seems like we might lose out because of a strong stand on the Bible. But can I encourage you tonight that Jesus sees that and Jesus commends that. And, and when we give an account someday for what our church has done, Jesus will praise us for that very thing. But not only that, Fellowship Baptist Church, I believe, is a church committed to holiness. All right, you heard it this morning from the pulpit. Even in a, a weird text in the Old Testament, our church is serious about practical righteousness our church is serious that as followers of jesus our lives ought to be distinct we have a pastor who is not afraid to talk about sin i even uh spoke with somebody who is a member here previously who lives in a different uh part of the state now and i remember talking to him and and i remember him making this comment i I had this conversation just a week or two ago and he said man I asked him, "Is the is the Bible preaching good there at the churchyard?" He's like, "Yeah, it's, I just feel like they don't preach on sin quite like Fellowship does." You know, I, I'm glad for that church that that I can come to church, and if I'm in the services and I'm under the preaching, God's not going to let me get away with sin in my life. That's that's how church ought to be. We ought to be a church that's committed to holiness and isn't afraid for somebody to preach about sin. And, and I'm not saying that any of us are perfect. Come on now, we all, we're all sinners in need of the grace of God. But we all understand this, that we, it is not acceptable to tolerate unrighteousness in our lives. And we're all striving to be better in the image of Jesus Christ. This is a church committed to holiness. And I, I believe this is a church that does the work of the Lord. Man, that's faithful in doing the work of the Lord. I, I, I want to I encourage you, church. Jesus sees when you are busy doing the work of the Lord. Man, some of you, we had our spring revival. I want to say it started two weeks ago now. Some of you would go to work, and then you'd come back home. You'd grab a quick bite to eat if you had time to do that. Maybe get a shower, maybe not. If you worked outside all day, you'd put on a change of clothes maybe and come to church at 7, get home at like 8.30. And you do that Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. We have men in our church who Maybe even all day on Thursday. I, I, I spent some time around volunteers for the Amen Conference the last couple of years. And literally almost all day Thursday, some guys are doing something in preparation for the Amen Conference. And then talk about Friday, man. It's, it's all day long. From early in the morning all the way till late at night, there are men of our church who are serving the Lord, who are faithful to do the work of the ministry. And I'm telling you, Jesus sees that stuff. And you may not see a lot of rewards on this side of heaven for that, but I'm telling you, Jesus sees that, and someday when you give an account to him for your life, Jesus will praise you for that, and will reward you for being busy about the work of the Lord. But, but here's the problem, church, is that what can happen is we can get so busy doing good things that we forget something that is more important than all of the work of the ministry we could ever do. That we can be, be so busy as a church standing for truth and standing for holiness and, and doing ministry and putting on these events and trying to minister to other churches in our region. We can become so busy with a million different pursuits that we don't notice the one most important thing is drifting away in our life. And that's our love and our devotion to Jesus Christ. See, in in the church at Ephesus, Jesus spends several verses praising this church and, and commending them for their faithfulness to being a good church and doing some good things, but I want you to look at verse number four, because right on a dime, the tone of his voice changes. Well, what does he say in verse four? He says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Why? because thou hast left thy first love. See, this church was doctrinally strong. This church was committed to holiness. But listen, church, their love for Jesus, their their lack of love for Jesus endangered the very future of this church. What does he say? He said they had left their first love. The, The idea there literally is that they had abandoned their prior love and devotion and passion to Jesus Christ. That that while this church on the outside still looks like a great church, and it still looks like they were faithfully doing the work of the Lord, there was something internally that they had left back here a long, long time ago. They used to be excited about Jesus. They used to love him. They used to look forward to being with Jesus. They used to enjoy what they were doing in church. They used to enjoy the services But slowly over time, they began to drift away till they came to a point where they had totally abandoned their former love for Jesus Christ. Now that's not to say that they didn't love Jesus at all. But it is to say that they could look back in their life and they could see a time in which they loved Jesus more. And and here's what happened. On the surface, this church looked strong, But as Jesus looked at them, he saw that there wasn't a lot of depth. Are you following me? Everything looked good on the outside because they were doing the right things. But they didn't have the right heart. And it's not that they had bad motives. Again, he said in verse number three, they, they did this thing for the name of the Lord, but they had forgotten to love Jesus. They'd forgotten to love him. And here's the truth, church, and here's what I want to spend some time talking about tonight. We cannot afford to become a church that serves Jesus much but loves him little. Church, we got to be careful about that. And listen, I'm no pastor. I'm not the pastor of this church. But as I study the Bible and I spend time around us and I look into my own life, if we're real honest as a church tonight, if there's any church that we identify with, probably of the seven that Jesus wrote to, it's probably the church at Ephesus. Because we're a church that's committed to doctrine, we're a church that's strong in our stand against holiness. But let's be honest, church, there's probably some of us that can look into our hearts and can look into our lives, and we can look back at a time when we love Jesus more than we do now. Am I the only one? I'll be real honest, I'm not even going to preach to you yet, I'll be real honest. I looked back at my life, even over the last year, and I saw that it's so subtle how Satan works in our lives. I saw that that I had become so engaged in doing things for Jesus that my heart wasn't there like it used to be. You wouldn't have known it. But I I took an honest inventory of my life at the end of 2018, I said, I'm not where I used to be. And I'm definitely not where I should be. Somewhere along the line, my love for Jesus had drifted. And here's the trouble. Here's the trouble, church, is we get so caught up in measuring our life by what's on the surface. Did, did you know that you can serve in Kids Blast ministry? And you can be an usher? And you can tithe? And you can do all of that stuff while at the same time having abandoned your love for Jesus? Why we drift it's so subtle it's so hard to recognize but, but it just happens in our life does our church have sin that needs to be dealt with absolutely we all deal with sin do we need to be stronger in our doctrine our stand for the truth absolutely church but listen if we do those things to the neglect of our love for Jesus we've missed something something's missing in our life Something isn't right, and we need to get back to a love for Jesus that we used to have. I just think in my mind, this church at Ephesus, man, the guest speakers probably came into their church and were like, man, this is a good church. They would have praised the church. They would have talked about how good they were. They would have said, man, this is one of the best churches in Asia. But Jesus could see through all the surface stuff, and he could look at their heart, and he could see that while the church did good deeds, they didn't have a proper devotion. They didn't have a heart for him. I want want to read this to you just a little bit because here's the problem. Sometimes we we become deceived thinking that maybe maybe we're in a decent spot. I want to read some things to you that might help you identify if maybe, just maybe, you've left your first love. Maybe you've drifted in your love for Jesus. Let me help you a little bit tonight. You might have left your first love if you rarely think about Jesus outside of church or spiritual gatherings? You've probably left your first love if you've ever had a stronger passion to learn more about God and his word than you do right now. You've left your first love if the Bible says so isn't enough for you to make a change in your life. How many of us understand what that's like? Oh, we got excuses after excuses. Jesus, you don't know where I'm at. You don't know this situation. But the Bible says so isn't enough. You've left your first love if you spend more time evaluating the spiritual lives of others than your own. You've left your first love if you feel like your Christian life is stuck in neutral. You've left your first love if you don't passionately love people like God loves them. How many of us would be real honest tonight and think, say, man, I I think I've left my first love? Let's be real honest, church. A lot of us are there because this is the danger of, of, of being around Jesus in church for a long time, is, is we know how to get set into the motions of doing what's on the service, but we neglect what's in the heart. We leave our first love. And here's what I want to do just briefly tonight. If you say, man, I, I think I've left my first love, can I give you from the passage, just real quickly, three steps to rekindle your love for Jesus? And, and maybe you'd write these down and re- and think about it because here, here's the truth. This is straight out of the text. And this will help you. If you're stagnant in your walk with the Lord, listen, if you're stagnant in your walk with the Lord, you need to follow these steps. It's real simple. Here's number one. Remember your past love. Remember your past love. Look at num- verse number uh, five. Here's what he says. He says, I have left, left thy first love. Here's verse number five. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. Read it with me, church. Verse number five. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Literally, here's what Jesus is doing. He's encouraging this church to look back and to visualize where they used to be. Because here's the truth, how many of you know this? That if we don't, if we don't take a moment to look at where we used to be, we can be in denial about where we are in the present. If we don't take a moment to examine where we were in the past, we can get into denial about where we are in the present. Now, I had a striking moment like this when Bobby Widener asked me to send him a picture of what I used to look like when I was a kid. He said, man, I wonder what Natalie's gonna look like. He said, send me a picture. And I started looking through my high school yearbooks and I thought, oh Lord. How many of you have done that? You've seen an old picture of yourself and you're like, oh man. And sometimes you look at, at where you were and you, you think of some negative things, right? Wow, I used, to, I used to be a lot skinnier back then. Playing lacrosse helped me a lot. Or you say, man, I, I had more hair. Look, some of you didn't think I had hair. I Look at that. I had a mane. Sometimes it's positive, right? You know, I didn't know how to wear a polo. I forgot to button a button apparently before I took my yearbook picture. Here's the truth, church. We we look at where we if we take a minute to look at where we were, to remember our past love, I want to encourage you to do this. What would your spiritual yearbook look like? Where was your love for Jesus a year ago? Where was your love for people a year ago? How critical was your spirit two years ago? What did your passion for God's word look like after you got saved? And here's probably what we'll find. We don't even realize how bad we're at, bad of a spot we're in right now. Man, I could look back at my spiritual yearbook. i say, man, there are times in my life where I could look back and say, whoa, I, I used to be all about getting in God's word. Oh, you didn't have to force me or twist my arm fact, there were times in my life where I came up with excuses to read the Bible. And some of you are like, well, you're weird. No, that, that shouldn't be weird. That should be normal. Like, we want to learn more and more about the Word of God. And there were times in my life where I, I remember, and I, I can look back and say, man, there was such a passion there. I'd have morning devotions and afternoon devotions. I had the time to do it. I was a teenager. And I can look back in my life, and I'm sure you can too. You can say, man, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't such an obligation to come to church. It wasn't such an obligation to serve in ministry, and it seems like we get stuck in a rut, don't we? Where we're just doing things out of obligation rather than out of love and devotion. How freely did you talk about Jesus in the past? Man, I, I don't know about you, but after we get saved, man, some, some of our new Christians, they bring more people to church in one month than some of us have brought in ten years. Why? Because they're not afraid to speak freely about Jesus. They're just excited about what God's done in their life. But man, we can look back on our life and say, whoa, I've just drifted, changed. Remember your past love. Here's number two. When you begin to dwell on where you were at, it ought to lead you to repentance. Here's number two. Repent of your failing love. Look at verse number five again. What does Jesus say to this church? He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. That's it. (laughs) One word, repent. What does repentance mean? It it literally means to change. It's a change of mind. It's a change in mind about our sin that leads to a change in direction. The the English word repent is actually, uh, comes from, if you look at the etymology of it, it literally means to do an about face to do a 180 and so here's what jesus is encouraging this church to do he says listen don't dwell too long on your failures that's not the point of remembering your past love he's encouraging them when you realize you've left your first love repent change your direction change your mind come up within your mind that it's not okay to be stagnant in your walk with god it's not okay to go through the motions that's not acceptable with Jesus. We change our mind, which leads to a change in direction. And listen, church, I, I'm, I'll just be real honest that some of the, one of the best things that some of us could do is humble our heart and come down to an old-fashioned altar and just spend some time in repentance before God. You know, you know what's a sign that maybe you've left your first love? Is if you're too proud to deal with your sin in a public setting. I realize that our church is maybe a little different in that we have an altar call, but I believe so strongly in it because there's just something helpful about leaving our sin in a place and getting up and saying, I'm done with that. And a lot of you, you didn't have to be forced. You didn't have to be prodded to respond in an invitation time. But you've been saved so long, you, you, you look around during some invitation times and you notice, well, some of them aren't going down to the altar it becomes this culture where it's okay for us not to deal with our sin and, and, and to get into a mindset, well, I'll just, I'll change. And maybe you're, you're more practical than I am, but I'll just be real honest. Some of the definitive moments of spiritual change in my life have happened when I humbled myself and I prayed at an altar. just helps me. Can I encourage you? If, if you're in a place where your walk with God is stagnant, just repent. Deal with your sin and say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm done living life like this. That's what repentance is. And here's number three, and we'll be done. If you want to rekindle your love for Jesus, he says to return to your past love. Look at verse five again. He says, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and read the next few words with me, church, do the first works. Do the first works. Do the first works. What does that mean? Um, in our bulletin this morning, we, we're, we're going to start promoting it. And on March 30th, we have a bridal shower for Marissa Rodriguez, who's been a member of our church. She got saved in our impact ministry, I believe. And uh, she's getting married to Landon Williams sometime this summer, I think in May. And uh, I don't know about you, I love my wife. I'm excited for people who are getting married. But engaged couples are weird, how many of you are like, I uh, I just try and stay away from them when they're near each other. It's just gross, you know. They're just weird. And, and they're they're just, you know, gooey all over. It's, uh, I just don't want to be anywhere near it. And I'm not saying I don't love my wife. Obviously, I love my wife. But but what I'm saying is that our emotional love matures over time, doesn't it? I think about Bill and Deanne Mills, and there's a lot of other couples in our church I could name that have been married for such a long time, and and that's such a good example to our church to see people like that who've been so faithful to each other. Listen, I'm glad Bill and Deanne Mills aren't all over each other. That, that would just be weird. Yeah, you thought Sunday Night Church would be boring. Wait till you hear this morning sermon if you weren't in there. I, I'm, I'm just saying that our, our love, sometimes we think, oh, our first love has to be all emotional and, and like an engaged couple. No, that's not... That's not what the passage is saying. He's not saying to recreate this emotional obsession about Jesus, but he says do the first, what's the next word? Works. How many of you understand if our pastor sat across the table giving some marriage counseling to somebody who's been 10 years into their marriage and their marriage is a little stagnant, that he'd probably encourage them to do the first works. He'd say, why don't you just go back to doing the things he used to do when you're dating? Date each other regularly and kiss each other and and just do all that. why because early on in a relationship that stuff comes naturally right because you're obsessed with the person like marissa and lan i just want to stay away from them because it's weird but here's what we have to do sometimes if we're going to rekindle our love for our savior we need to go back and do the first works you're not going to feel the same emotions as when you got saved probably but you need to do the same things you did when you were excited about jesus christ what, what were the first works? Well, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's probably, they, they didn't have any hesitation to spend time in God's word. They didn't have any hesitation to be around God's people and try and learn as much as they could about the Lord. That, that just came naturally when they were excited about the Lord. They wanted to get involved. They wanted to serve. They wanted to, to be involved in church. All that stuff came naturally. So here's what we need to do, church. If our love for Jesus Christ has become stagnant, we need to go back. And do the first works. Listen, can I encourage you? Don't wait on an emotional, don't wait for an emotional drive to get serious about serving Jesus. That's not healthy in marriage and that certainly isn't healthy in a relationship with Jesus Christ. To say, well, I'm gonna let my emotions drive my behavior. No, no, no. Here's what happens when we get back to the first works and we, we get around God's people like we used to and, and we actually sing in the song service because that's what a song service is for. We praise the Lord with our lips and we give praises to him uh, from, from our heart. Here's what happens. Sometimes God gives you that emotional fervor and God gives you that passion and when we do the first works, God gives us a renewed passion for him. So just do the first works. what you used to do when you were excited about the Lord? Maybe you're like me and you read your Bible a lot or you spent time in prayer, not because you knew you should pray every day, but because you knew you just needed God's help. Go back and return to the very things you did when you were passionate about Christ. And here's, here's where it gets real serious. Look at verse number five again. He writes to this church and he says, listen, there's some real stakes in this. That if you don't get things right, there are some serious consequences. Look at verse 5. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. What does it say, church? Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. Repent. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven different churches. And he wrote to churches that were doctrinally compromised, that, that didn't know whether or not idol worship was okay. He wrote to churches that were lukewarm, right? We know about the church at Laodicea, and he'd rather them be hot or cold. They, they thought they were so rich that they didn't even need Jesus. And you know which church got the strongest rebuke? The church at Ephesus. Jesus didn't write to any other church and said, I'm going to remove your candlestick other than the church at Ephesus. What does that mean? Literally, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you don't get things right, in my mind, you'll be the same as heretics. I'm going to remove your status as one of my churches. How many of you get the idea that Jesus is pretty serious about our devotion to him? I'm not, I'm not saying he's more serious about our devotion than our doctrine, but he sure is pretty serious about it. And the strongest word of rebuke he had was for a church that on the surface, everything looked okay, but a lot of them had drifted away in their heart. Everything looked good. Their doctrine was good. They lived holy lives, but something in their heart wasn't right because they didn't love Jesus like they used to. And church, can I encourage you tonight if maybe you would identify in your life that your love for Christ is not where it used to be or it's not where it should be? Would you get serious about repentance? I want to read a a quote that kind of sealed the deal that I wasn't where I needed to be and I hope maybe this would help you. The author says this, tell me what you think about and I'll tell you what you love. Tell me what you talk about, and I will tell you what you love. Tell me what excites you, and I'll tell you what you love. My prayer for you, as well as for myself, is that the answer will be the same for all of these. May the answer always be Jesus.